starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and says rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore, 
be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the 1500s was the time of the Reformation. There was a a German monk and priest who, as he was studying the scriptures, started to see some things that didn't really correlate to what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching at the time. And so out of innocence and a conviction sparking in his heart, he wrote down 95 things. He took it to a poster board or a tack board, which was the local church door. He nailed it onto the church door so that way him and the other priests in the area could have a conversation about it. And from then on, we have the spark of the Reformation. The movement away from papal authority or the authority solely from the Pope to believing that our authority comes from Scripture alone. You see, what Martin Luther was doing was seeing errors in the church and he had set out to correct or properly teach what the Bible really taught. This morning, we're actually seeing something very similar take place here. As last week, what we saw Jesus say, I haven't come to abolish the law and prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. And so a part of that fulfilling them is to come and properly explain the true intent and meaning of the law. So if we could put one sentence behind what Jesus is trying to communicate here to his disciples as he is teaching them, this is the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus is teaching His disciples how to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven by teaching them or pointing them to be conformed to the King. Jesus is teaching His disciples how to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven by teaching them or pointing them to be conformed to the King. We see this as Jesus in this section of Scripture that we're about to read, this section of his sermon, says six different times, you have heard it said, or something similar, it was said, or again, it has been said. And he goes on to six different times say, but I say to you. So we're going to break this sermon up into two primary points. The first point, verses 21 through 47, we could label, I say to you. Jesus is saying to us. He's teaching us the law. The last point, we could say, be perfect. So, I say to you, first point, be perfect, second. We come to the first point of this passage, I say to you, and one thing that we can notice or recognize is that Jesus has split up this six different I say to you's into groups of two. The first two deals with the Ten Commandments. He's going to speak on anger or murder and adultery. The second two have to deal with civil disputes. Divorce and oath-taking. 
And the last two have to deal with loving my enemy or what we do to those who don't look like us or who are in our tribe. And so we come to the first two here, dealing with the Ten Commandments. We, we see, as Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, this is what you were taught. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Judgment by God. But this is how Jesus goes on to explain this. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The same judgment here that Jesus is speaking of is the same judgment that you are liable if you murder somebody. But he goes on even further. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This hell of fire was like a burning pit outside where they would throw the dead bodies or different trash that were executed. Jesus, right away, on the heels of saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter in the kingdom of heaven, only seems to add the weight even further, doesn't he? I thought, Jesus, that I was only liable to judgment if I murdered somebody, and now you're saying that if I'm angry with somebody, I'm liable to this judgment. Jesus is telling us that it's not the outward actions that he's concerned about, it's actually the inward heart motives that come out that he's worried about. He is worried primarily about our hearts. And we see this as he gives two illustrations. Interestingly enough, these two illustrations really don't have to deal with the person themselves being angry, but the consequences that happen when a person is angry with another person. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So Jesus is saying, if... If you're going to church, if you're sitting in the middle of a sermon, if you're about to take communion, and you remember that your brother, sister, father, mother, close companion has been offended by you, is resenting you because of your anger, he goes on to say, leave your gift right there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come to offer your gift. So here, I'm just gonna, we're just going to call a time out. If you need to get up right now and go and seek reconciliation with a brother and sister, take the time of a momentary embarrassment to apply this passage right away. I will lovingly say, the door is right there. It is better right now that you leave to go and seek reconciliation than stay and listen to the rest of the sermon and take communion. You can come by the church tomorrow and take communion if you'd like. Now is the opportunity to leave. Jesus is saying, if your anger has offended somebody in such a way that now they are resentful towards you, if they are bitter towards you, if you have harmed them, Go and seek reconciliation. Apologize. Ask for forgiveness. 
So he talks about the person that's close to you, but then he also talks about possibly the person that you offend in such a way by your anger or hurt in such a way by your anger that you get taken to court. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, the one who will accuse you of the anger and your actions. While you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The reason why Jesus is not looking at the act of murder, but he's looking at the heart of anger, is because the heart of anger leads to the act of murder. It's interesting while reading through Proverbs to hear how many times our words either build people up and give them life or act as a way to condemn and drag them down into the grave. Notice that Jesus' illustrations here aren't even about the person that's murdered, but it's about how the person's anger leads to a person feeling resentful and hurt. Jesus is concerned about the anger in our heart primarily. And we see this again with the next commandment that we look at as he then goes on to say, you have heard it said, it was taught to you. You shall not commit adultery. Don't find somebody else's spouse to sleep with is what Jesus is saying you have been told. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lustful intent here. Lustful intent. It's the idea of glancing over one more time. It's the idea of closing your door to your computer room. It's the idea of fantasizing about another person's spouse with the intent to think about what a one-night stand might feel like. This lustful intent is the intent to get somebody else to lust after you as well. And here's how Jesus applies this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So is Jesus saying here, if you have lustful intent that you need to go home and take a knife and gouge your eye out? Well, I don't think that's the case. The light is a lamp to your heart. He's saying what you look at is important. He's saying if it comes down to it and you have to close your eyes, if it comes down to it and you have to turn your head, if it comes down to it and you have to recite Scripture or sing a song out loud to drown out any type of thought, then do so. If it means picking up God's Word and looking at the words, then do that. Turn your eye away from that which is causing you to 
have lustful intent. But that's not the only application that he has for us here. He, he says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that of your whole body. Once again, is, is Jesus talking about cutting off your hand so that way you don't go to hell? No. Jesus is saying we must take our sin and our heart this serious. We must have a seriousness about taking, about taking our sin. We need to take our sin serious. This is the seriousness of taking our sin that Jesus is applying here. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. Do not take what is yours or what is not yours. What a thing it is when you are lustful intenting to think about someone, to take one of the most private things from them and use it for your own self-pleasure. To manipulate and to use a person for your pleasure. Don't take with your right hand what is not yours. It would be better to cut off your hand. It's better to deal with your sin. It is better to deal with your temptations soon before it is too late. And Jesus goes on as he continues to address what the fulfillment of this law is by now looking at two different civil aspects of the law. It was also said Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What had started to happen is that the men had started using any and all reason to be able to divorce their wives. I had it explained to me like this. Burnt toast, I divorce you. Bad personality, I divorce you. Not taking care of me, I divorce you. This is what was taking place, and the Pharisees were helping people to manipulate and find loopholes into this to bolster their own outward righteousness. And so what Jesus is trying to go back to is the intent of why divorce was given in the first place. Divorce is to be taken on the grounds of sexual immorality. He is correcting this misunderstanding, this loophole that the Pharisees were finding. Same thing with oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or uh, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. What the Pharisees were doing and what was the common practice at this point was to put up your finger and say, I pinky promise this. 
Come hell or high water, this will be taken care of. I swear to you, I will take care of this. And what happens when you start to make promises that you can't keep? Well, they just come out as lies. And what the Pharisees were doing and what the custom was that they were setting and what they were teaching was it's okay to lie just a little bit. And it's even okay to swear by heaven as long as you can find a loophole through it. But everybody knows that even the smallest white lie is still a full lie. And what was being taught here and what was being shown by the Pharisees was this idea that it's okay to lie sometimes. And yet what Jesus is calling the disciples and those hearing this sermon into is saying, let what you say simply be yes. Or this is an emphatic yes. We could say, let what you say simply be yes, yes. Let what you say simply be, no, no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So what Jesus is calling his disciples back to is, don't lie. Let your yes be yes and your no be no and let it be that. There is no need to swear by heaven, to swear by the earth, to swear by the kingdom, to swear by your head. Just let your yeses be yes and your noes be no. He's correcting these misunderstandings and these loopholes that the Pharisees were looking for in order for their outward righteousness to appear better than that of the common person. And so Jesus then goes on to the next two. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is calling his disciples to be merciful instead of plotting, which we, we see from the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees later on, just how they retaliated against Jesus. The Pharisees are a great picture of what it looks like to retaliate as they plot to take this man's life. And Jesus is saying, no, as my disciples, I've called you now to be merciful to those who are evil. Bless those who curse you. I think out of all of these, the one that is the best illustration is if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. At this time, it wasn't uncommon for a, a Roman guard to look at a person in the crowd and say, you carry my Roman equipment for me a mile. And they would have to do it. And what Jesus is saying is show them mercy by not just going one mile with them and thinking of ways to retaliate against them or harbor anger in your heart towards them. 
but instead be merciful and carry it an extra mile for them. Find ways to be merciful to those who haven't been merciful to you. And lastly here, as he then moves on, why do we retaliate? Well, we retaliate because we see these people as enemies. You have heard that it was said, you've been taught, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. So Jesus is calling his disciples not to hate their enemies, but to love them. To love them just as he, Jesus, has loved his enemies by laying down his life for them. He even goes so far to say is, this is the thing that will show that you are sons of your Father. Why do we love our enemies? Well, it was common for the Pharisees, it was common for the modern religious thought that we just stay with those people who or we just love those people who look like us, who are in our tribe, who believe like us, who say the things that we would like to hear. We will love those people who don't offend us, but instead are easygoing and I'm able to get along with. And Jesus then goes on to say, look, even tax collectors do that. The people who you look at as the most shady people, the people who lie the most, tax collectors, do a good job at loving those who love them. Even the Gentiles do a good job of loving those who love people. Our love as Christians are actually supposed to look different in this world. And the way that it's done is by loving those who would be considered our enemies. This is what Jesus explains to us. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Do not the tax collectors love those who love them? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Do not only the, the Gentiles greet those people who are on board with them? So the question that we have to ask here ourselves as we're looking at Jesus teaching this is, is Jesus establishing a new law? Is Jesus saying, out with the old, in with the new? Well, the answer is no. A few verses earlier, Jesus told us, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so what he is doing is he is properly explaining the true intent and meaning behind it. As the disciples were left, off in verse 20, with Jesus saying, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, no one will enter the kingdom of heaven. We come here towards the end of this and we say, well, then who in the world can enter the kingdom of heaven? Because Jesus, what you're saying right now is that it's not just good that the Pharisees outwardly look righteous, but it's the inward righteousness that's more important. You're saying that it's not just the outward act that's sinful and and liable to judgment, but it's the inward act that I'm liable to judgment. So what's going on here? What's Jesus doing? You remember how Jesus starts the beginning of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs shall be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs shall be the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is helping his disciples to see how spiritually poor they really are. Jesus is helping us this morning see how spiritually poor we are. So this is the question that we must ask ourselves and ask ourselves every day when we go to sleep. Am I believing my external righteousness makes me right with God? Am I believing that this outward righteousness of good deeds makes me right with God? Do I love to be looked at as a good person outwardly while all the while avoiding the inward aspect, the the inward depravity, the inward sin of my heart? Do I look at God's law of just saying, well, at least I'm not murdering anybody. I'm doing pretty good. At least I haven't committed adultery. At least I haven't physically stolen anything. Or are we taking time to analyze our heart to see that we too are desperately poor in spirit? Do you believe that you are poor in spirit? Because there's good news for those that do. As Jesus finishes this section then saying, you therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How could that possibly be good news? How can I be perfect like my Heavenly Father? Well, this is the good news that Jesus has come to accomplish perfection on our behalf. This is the good news that Jesus fulfills the law. He fulfills the law by perfectly obeying every aspect of it. He fulfills the law for dying in our place, facing the wrath of God in our place, being buried, being crucified, being buried, and raising the third day so that when we believe in Him and trust in our Savior Jesus, all of our sin is taken from us and we receive His righteousness. We receive His perfection. The Father no longer looks at you and I as enemies any longer, but He looks at us as beloved sons and treasured daughters. He sees Christ's perfection in us. 
That's the hope that we have. That's the righteousness that we need that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And only by being poor in spirit do we come to the realization that we need Christ. We need His sacrifice for our sins. So how do we be perfect just as our Heavenly Father is perfect? Well, we believe in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. And then the next thing is we obey Jesus. God calls His people when Moses is leading them to be holy because He is holy. Peter picks up on that and then says the same thing to the elect exiles. Be holy as God is holy. So Jesus is not only calling His disciples to the perfection of another, but He's calling His disciples to obey now. And this is the truth that comes from this passage, that those who trust Jesus have this strange desire, not out of duty or thinking, I have to somehow impress somebody else with my external good works. It comes out of this overflowing love for Jesus, realizing He has done the greatest possible thing for me. So I want to take each and every step being perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. Growing up into full maturity. Being transformed and renewed. This is the good news when Jesus says, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. He is calling them to a greater obedience than just external good works that make them look good. This desire that overflows out of your heart to obey God is actually the foundation of our worship towards Him. This is the best possible place we could be, spiritually bankrupt, receiving perfection from Christ, and out of an overflowing love of worship towards God, doing everything we can to encourage one another, to live obedient lives, growing up into maturity in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to clarify the law. Forgive us for the times that we make things muddy and complicated. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.